Today on the Almond Journey podcast. The population of female moths in my orchard has dropped considerably from an average of six to maybe three or less, which puts me in the you don't have to spray category. Monitoring and mass trapping of navel orange worm females with Dennis Yotsuya and Alonce Peterson. Welcome back to the Almond Journey podcast brought to you by the Almond Board of California. On the show, we discover how growers, handlers, and other stakeholders are making things work in their operations to drive the almond industry forward. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich, and I get to travel up and down the valley, virtually in this case, to feature the leaders who are finding innovative ways to improve their operations, connect with their local communities, and advance the almond industry. We're actually going to make two stops on today's episode. First, we'll visit with Cortez, California almond grower Dennis Yotsuya, who's done such an effective job with orchard sanitation and trapping of navel orange worm females that he's been able to avoid hole sprays over the course of several years. Then we'll visit with the creator of the trap that Dennis has been using, Elance Peterson. Through effective winter sanitation and calculating the infestation rate, Elance and growers like Dennis determine the right number of traps that should keep their orchards under a certain threshold during the first flight of these navel orange worm females. Then the traps provide validation and visibility to adapt the plan in season if needed. So first we'll visit with Dennis Yotsuya, who's got a small orchard in Cortez, just southeast of Turlock. He's been using the traps for about five years now and says he has no doubt that they've really made a difference in his program. And I asked him what initially led him to trying this approach in the first place. I belong to Cortez Growers and originally it was um, mostly Japanese American farmers about 35 or 40 families. And at that time, we hired a PCA to monitor insects for us and advise us when to spray. And I guess for me, we got into the program of spraying peach twig borer, red emma mites in the wintertime, and then navel orange worm probably in May and also again at whole split. Kind of that's what everybody did. <laughs> But over the years, the PCA who, he monitored all of the fields in this area of the farmers that were in Cortez growers. And he noticed that some of the older farmers were not spraying versus some of the people that were spraying and seemed that their insect damage was similar. And so I, I kind of set out on the path of the non-spray people and that was kind of about the time when the farm advisors starting to talk about dormant sprays not being effective. And so looking for alternatives at one time in the 90s, I did put out um, goniosis, which is a navel orange worm parasite. And I tried that, I think, for a couple of years, although, you know, it's hard to see if I was getting any results. But... You know, from this non-spray program, eventually, I don't know, either nature or the natural predators started to take care of a lot of the problem, so I didn't have to mite spray. And so I just kind of transitioned because my devil orange worm damage was never really high. When I really started to pay attention, it was maybe 2 to 3% on a non-spray program. So 
was probably considered fairly low. And then when I transitioned to the Peterson trap, because I only sprayed one time, oh, in the maybe early 2000s, because decided that crop damage had a lot to do with how many nuts you had on the field. And it seemed to me that the moth and worm numbers were the same. So if you had a big crop, you had less damage. And if you had a small crop, you had more damage. So I think only one year out of the last 20, I sprayed for navel orange worm because I thought the population was going to hit me because I had a bad crop. Oh, I see. Okay. So about the same amount of damage, but uh, on a smaller crop, so higher percentage. That's right. Yeah. And when did you first hear about these traps and, and what uh, appealed to you about the idea? First heard about it probably in maybe 2015 or 16, 17, maybe, because my first year using them was 2018. So I had heard it, it intrigued me because even though I didn't spray much, what intrigued me was that once you put a trap out, it works all the time. Whereas the people that are spraying, you had to hit these certain windows of time to be effective. So I thought that was an interesting idea, or I knew it was more advantageous to use a product like that. And at the time, the mating disruption was just beginning, and it was very expensive. And I figured I went to the Peterson Trap because it was equal in cost to a spray. I guess the other thing at that time, you know, prices were decent and you could spend the money. <laughs> and so I tried it in 2018. And like I say, my normal damage was around between 2 and 3%. And I figured if I was around 2, since I'm a member of Blue Diamond, I got most premiums from that. And if I could be below, you know, it was a bonus without spraying or anything. So I saved that input cost before I started using Peterson and that was getting, you know, okay results depending on the amount of crop. I was able to live with that. And then in 2018, I thought I'd try this Peterson trap. It was a relatively new idea at the time to trap female moths because the, the trap has been around for a long time because they put out the normal pheromone trap and you catch male moths and they just started using these Peterson traps to catch female moths because traditionally the only way you knew you had females was you had to count the eggs on this egg trap. And it wasn't that effective and it never told you exactly when to spray or anything like that. So I went in 2018 and the first year Elon said, well, I have too many female moths, I should spray because his program is not just use his product and you can forget about spraying. So they monitored the average number of moths and I had over the threshold where he thought I'd have damage and I didn't spray and I still had around 2%. And I think about that time, or maybe slightly earlier, people started saying, well, you have to check your insect damage because it may not all be navel orange worm. And they were finding out that ants were becoming a problem. But once I started getting breakdowns from Blue Diamond on my insect damage, I was finding that my navel orange worm damage was around a half a percent. 
and the rest of it was worms and then some other miscellaneous damage, shriveled and gumming and things like that. So I think the investment has paid off. And right now I'm, I'm still hovering around a half percent or less, depending on the year. I've been pretty happy with the investment. Right. And, and can you walk me through kind of the economics of that, you know, paying for that versus not paying for it and what the damage could be to the bottom line? Just kind of walk through what the how the economic decision looks, the business decision. The Peterson trap cost me about seventy five dollars of an acre. And when I first started, it was a little bit less. But, you know, spray materials nowadays cost. Usually, if you put insecticide in, you have to put a miticide in. So you're talking about maybe $50 for the insect and eh, maybe 20 or sometimes you can get away with a cheap insecticide. But my feeling is I think the, the uh, beneficials, the six-spotted thrips and stuff help with the mite population. So I personally would want to use a miticide that has um, minimal effect on them. So you're talking about another $40. You know, it's a more expensive miticide. So, you know, I'd be looking at $90 probably or maybe less. And then I, I don't spray anymore. So I have to hire a commercial person. That's another $30 an acre. So from a cost of material, and paying a guy to spray for me, it's a little more expensive. And nowadays when they talk about, you know, I have friends that spray sometimes, they spray twice for navel orange worm. And so that, you know, makes it doubly expensive. So I think I'm saving money. You know, maybe I might save that money and not be too bad off if I didn't do anything. But that's kind of cheap insurance to $70. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And has there been anything else about it that has surprised you that's maybe been, you know, different than what you would have expected when you started using them? Well, what's been surprisingly good news is that as I've used it since for what, five years, I think the population of female moss in my orchard has dropped considerably from an average of six to maybe three or less, which puts me in the you don't have to spray category. Although the damage hasn't been that much different. So, I don't. I mean, you know, right now, the hard thing is if your damage is in the one half or 1% or whatever, it's so small that a few nuts, you know, can make a difference in your grade. And some of that grading is kind of luck of the draw, you know, where they take the sample and that kind of stuff. So, can't complain about the results I'm getting. Yeah. And uh, can you talk about premiums? Uh, I think you mentioned Blue Diamond earlier. Has this helped with your premiums? Uh, yes, it has. If your damage is under 2% insects, then they pay, you know, if it's zero, it's like five cents. But, you know, at 1% with the ants and the things, it's about two, two cents additional, two and a half cents additional. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's real money. Yeah, real money. Plus, if you can keep your damage down, you know, Mel Machado's done this big spreadsheet about it's not just what you lose in premiums, but, you know, you lose crop because that 1% is deducted from your gross crop delivery. So you're losing money by, you know, not getting that amount of crop counted and paid. 
So if you look at his spreadsheet, you could spend a couple hundred dollars and still come out ahead. But I've been on this non-spray thing. Some of it's been um, kind of just environmental. You know, at one time we did um, alternate row mowings to keep the insects and the bad insects in the grass. So you just mow half of the field. And then a couple of weeks later, you mow the other half. So I've always been on this reduced pesticide kind of path, I guess, you know, to be more friendly to the environment. Although, you know, I do use weed control devices, so I'm not organic. Right, right. And it seems like it's, I mean, you're finding ways to do it. Yeah, yeah. So if I understood you correctly, Dennis, you were already on this path of of cutting out sprays before you started with the traps. Do you think if you hadn't started the traps, you would have to still be spraying from time to time? Yeah, I think so, because I think the navel orange worm pressure is more than it used to be. And I don't know why, just from people around here. But, you know, I have neighbors that are fairly conscientious and they all spray. So, you know, I don't get much fly in from the neighbors. So, and then we all, we all mommy shake, which I think is the most important thing for um, navel orange worm control. So, all of the neighbors close by mummy shake. So, I think the combination of the two is a program that's been working. Yeah. Very cool. Well, um, anything else, Dennis, that we should make sure we mention uh, on an episode about these traps and um, I'm sure it'll be of great interest for other people who have had problems with navel orange worm damage in the past and may be looking for a new approach. The only thing would be that if you're going to go with the program to try it for more than one year, because it does help, you know, each succeeding year I had less female moss. So I think that is a benefit. Like I say, though, we're in an area where, you know, the neighbors and everything all are on similar, not trap programs but they are on you know stricter insecticide control things so i don't have any fly-in problems you know each orchard's kind of different but i think if you try it, it you should try it for more than one year and see it see how the results are plus checking to make sure your damage is actually from navel orange worm and it sounds like for you, you you know once you kind of figured out how much of your damage was navel orange worm you've been able to keep that steady through the years even though it seems like navel orange worm pressure in general has grown am i am i understanding that correctly yes that's correct because i had a friend that tried it and he says and i had the worst reject problem that he's ever had he said a lot of it was brown spot and i said well if you don't <laughs> get a breakdown of what it is it's hard to blame it on the traps you know absolutely well i've really enjoyed this dennis it's neat to talk to you and hear your story and um i really appreciate you taking the time for this Oh, yeah, my pleasure. All right. Well, I really enjoyed talking to Dennis there, but it is time to move on to our second stop for today, which is down south to Visalia to visit with Lance Peterson. Lance says he came up with the concept of this trap when he was a field scout working for Integral Ag under Dr. Justin Ney, who we actually featured on the show back in episode 18. Justin figured out the threshold for the number of navel orange worm females during first flight that would correlate with enough damage to require a hole spray. At the time, Lance was 
counting egg traps, and he wanted a better, less tedious way that was not only easier for anyone scouting orchards, but also more accurate, more reliable. What he came up with was actually all of those things, with the big added benefit of mass trapping the pests to prevent future generations. Alant shares more about how these traps work and the difference they can make versus just relying on egg traps or pheromone traps. Yeah, so what we use is we use a caramel. So there's two things. There's a caramel which catches uh, females. And so what the caramel is, is pretty much just mimicking a host source, right? It's, it's the host source. In our bait, what we basically do is we, we mimic the mummies that are left in the trees, right? So the female wants to lay her offspring onto something that's viable that, you know, obviously will let them develop and then come back out and reproduce again. So basically what we did was we just did that. We just took the nuts that were already in the field left over um, that we were pretty much putting in our egg traps. And some people used almond meal, right? And so there was the almond meal. Um, so just to be kind of economical about it, we just crushed up old mummy nuts and put those in our egg traps at the time. So that's pretty much how it started off. And since I was already using that, I just, like I said, I had the idea of, well, why can't I just put this inside of the trap, like a sticky trap, and start catching females? And so that's what I did there. And then there's the pheromone trap, which basically catches males. All right. So that is giving off the odor of a female. And so the males are attracted to that. But it kind of gives off a wider plume. So you're catching males from could be from outside your orchard, right? Whereas our female trap is kind of local source. So if they're flying in your orchard, they're going to be there. I mean, if you have traps on the outside edge, you will be able to detect moths coming in and out. And is it purely a scent thing that attracts them? It's the scent of these mummy nuts? Yeah. Um, so basically, that's pretty much it. So they're running up and down trees or flying up and down trees all night looking for that scent so that they could lay their eggs on it. And that's what they're doing with the mummies. So for us, we put out multiple traps per acre. So we're putting out anywhere from four to 16 traps per acre for the mass trapping portion. And so we're able to actually catch those moths as they're flying through the field looking for mummies. They find our trap and they get caught there. If they miss our trap, they'll just get caught in the next one further down. So that's kind of how that partially works on the mass trapping. For monitoring, they do the same thing. Uh, it's just a monitoring tool at that point. So you can see if they're in the orchard right. or not. And so um, how often are you going out and, and checking the trap? So we, we try to go out at least once a month. And so we'll set the trap up generally in the beginning of April, late March, depending on petal fall and jacket. You know, we don't want extra stuff inside of our traps getting dirty before the flight starts. So uh, usually we start in April and we go out and we check it and number it, you know, about a month later. And then we come back out within three to four weeks every time. We just kind of do a circle around the state and then we'll change it and we'll check it again in June. So by June 15th, we are looking for the accumulative number of less than six miles per trap. And if we get that, then we can pretty much see that the orchard is clean enough to where damage would be very minimal. 
So when we get higher um, moth than six, then we know we didn't put enough traps out to lower that population enough. Okay, so this brings up a really important point here. Are you trying to monitor to determine you know, what treatment should be used, or are you trying to treat with the traps themselves or both? We are doing actually both, yeah. So we can monitor to see how many moths are out there or how many moths per acre we have. You know, so the more traps you have, the tighter the net, we could say, right? So if you had like four traps per acre versus the 16 traps per acre, four traps per acre, we'd be every eight rows, every eight trees, roughly seven trees. Whereas 16 traps per acre would be every other row at every four trees, depending on the, the spacing of the trees, right? So the tighter the net, the more moths we're going to catch out of your field. And so we're going to lower that population. If we do it early spring, we lower the first flight population to the second flight population is low enough to where it doesn't get into hole split, or at least at a high rate. And the threshold is an average of six or less per trap? So, yes. Yeah, so that is our threshold that, that we have is an accumulative between April and June of less than six so if you hit six, and that also just depends, um, there's a couple of caveats in there where that'll depend on yield size, right? So your yield size is going to also affect it. So if you have a small yield, your number actually needs to be lower than that. So this is based on a 2,000 pound crop, you know, per acre. So if you have less than 2,000 pounds that you normally would get, then you would want your number to be lower. If you grow more than 2,000 pounds to the acre, you could probably absorb a little bit more, but every orchard is different. Every block is different, right? So we don't want to lock ourselves in. This is just a threshold that we can kind of gauge off of. And it's kind of like a cookie cut where we were able to kind of just address everybody, good or, or bad, depending on kind of where they fell. Right. Okay. So, so if that, you know, uh, cumulative number is less than six, you're good to go. You're feeling great. If it's more than six, what are growers doing at that point? Um, at that point, you're talking to your PCAs about, you know, doing more, maybe doing an extra whole split spray. You know, in both scenarios, you're trying to shoot for early harvest, right? So as soon as you whole split 1%, you got pretty much 35 days to get your crop down and out of the field. Um, that way, the third flight doesn't come in and start causing damage in your your pollinators yeah so you're trying to trying to get ahead of her at that point interesting and are most growers using this in addition to uh pheromone traps and winter sanitation or is this in place of one or just in place of maybe a you know an extra spray or, or kind of a, how is this fitting into their overall integrated management of navel orange worm i mean the intention of this was to get growers to sanitize better, catch the moths, and reduce their sprays. That was the intention. But, you know, economics play a part in all that. So we can do all of those. We're always going to say sanitation is number one, right? Sanitation is your best bang for your buck kind of thing. So your best thing to do would be to sanitize. If you sanitize really good, you most likely wouldn't need to spray. But we wouldn't know that unless we put out traps. So that, therefore, that's where the monitoring part comes in. 
and we're also reducing the population, the rest of the population that's there. Um, so we can reduce sprays that way. We also can increase sprays by knowing that we have too many moths in our orchard with the trap data. So that way we kind of mitigate some extra damage there too if we go that direction. So yeah, it can do both. I've seen some growers not pull as heavily and just put out more traps um, because they can kind of get good results doing that with a spray program. I've seen growers sanitize really well and not spray at all with using the trap data. Yeah. But to make sure I'm understanding, to get back to the, the bottom line here is like, especially if you're catching these females early, you're keeping them from laying a hundred plus eggs in your orchard. Yes. So you're keeping them from doing that, but also you're keeping the next generation at bay too. The next generation doesn't exist if you catch her early. So that's how we lower the population going into the second flight. And we can get away with a lot more, right, than we used to. And we have the data. So that's the power of it. It's you have that data, you have that knowledge, and you can figure out with your orchard specifically what to do and what not to do. So if you early harvest or you versus late harvest or, you know, you have a, a big crop one year versus a light crop the next year, you can then see what that number actually means for all of that. So there's so many experiments that you can actually do with this trap. You can just use it in so many different ways that basically you can tell, you know, how well things are working. If you want to introduce something new into your program, you could then have a standard of, you know, how many moths it actually took for you to get damage and say you introduce a new product. You can then see if that same number actually gave you less damage or the same amount, you know, so if the next product is working better or, or maybe not. It pretty much gives you a check on everything and confirmation on your field. So you just get a kind of a heads up and a kind of a bird's eye view of what's going on, right? It's like a big flashlight. That's what I say. It's a big flashlight. And now you can see inside, right? Before we're just in the dark, we just kind of, you know, Hey, we got some from problems. We don't know why we got damaged this year versus last year, but there's no real answer. But now you can actually get those answers. And getting those answers is what we're all about here on the show. Thank you so much to Alonce Peterson and Dennis Yotsuya for being on today's program. If you'd like to learn more about how these traps work, you can certainly visit Alonce's website, which we will link to in the show notes. We here at the Almond Journey podcast believe everyone in the almond industry has a story of their own of how they are making things work on their farms or in their jobs. Hearing the voices of industry leaders, people like Dennis Yotsuya and Alonce Peterson may spark a connection. Or, or an idea that you can use in your own journey. And that's why we want to feature these stories of innovation, resilience, and community here on this podcast. I hope you'll come along for the ride by subscribing to the show on your podcast platform of choice. And please pass it along to someone else in the industry so we can all share in this almond journey together. <laughs>